Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg's executive producer, Rob Perra. At a recent Food Tank live event in Boston, Edible Boston's Sarah Blackburn sits down with Dr. Sarah Bleich, professor of public health policy at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. On stage, they talk about the nutrition policies changing health for consumers or industry leaders and discover the policies that will change health across stakeholders in the food system. Enjoy the show. I am now excited because we have two Sarahs doing incredible work in the food system who are going to join us. We have Dr. Sarah Bleich, a professor of public health policy at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Uh, and she will be moderated by Sarah Blackburn, the editor of Edible Boston. Please join me in welcoming them. Hi, Sarah. I feel like we're all going to solve something here today. Um, there's so many smart people in this room. It's amazing. Um, so in your years of research at Harvard on obesity and diet-related diseases, you've been able to show that healthy eating and good nutrition is not always what people gravitate towards. Um, mostly because unhealthy and high calorie and salt and sugar and fat-laden foods are generally more available and than healthy foods are, um, which can often be more expensive and harder to find in certain communities. Um, and you did the most adorable experiment with children on YouTube, which I fell in love with, which was called The Shopping Game, where, and I think everybody should find this on YouTube and watch it. Her children are in it. It's very cute. <laughs> They're wearing hearts on their knees. Um, where the children were offered choices and they had a shopping basket and what should they put in their basket and when offered both healthy choices and unhealthy choices, they did typically choose the unhealthy choices and they knew they were choosing the unhealthy choices, which was fascinating. Um, so this does relate to your studies on how food policy on the federal and local level can influence our overall health. So in what ways do these policies, and which are they, um, what, can they what can they do to help us out? Thanks. Uh, so thank you, Sarah, and thank you, Danny and Dari, for inviting me to come here tonight. So this, this video that Sarah's talking about was this neat way of sort of taking all these complex ideas about how do you change policy and distilling it down into a game for children to make this point that we have all these options available to us. And if you put a few rules on kids, like how do they sort of make choices? And I think for me, it was really interesting because the whole purpose of it was when people talk about policy, it's about numbers and it's about all these things that don't connect with people. But let's just tell a story and let's try to make this really interesting through children. So it's a really cute video. It's called The Shopping Game. My little kiddos are in it and then some other kiddos are in it. Um, but the idea was funny because for my, for my children, they are not allowed to drink sugary beverages. It's like a red line in our house. So if they go to a birthday party, they can either have cake or, or juice. So they always pick juice because they can never, ever have it otherwise. And it was funny because this is like on YouTube and my little one's going through this line and one, the sweet option, you could pick one sweet option, there was juice. And so she grabs the juice and on this little two minute video, she's literally chugging the juice. <laughs> my God. She was my so God. happy. She's so happy. But, but I would say, so to answer your question, like what works? So you have these little cute videos try to illustrate this point about how do you create rules, which to Dari's point earlier, bring down barriers to healthy food and raise up barriers to unhealthy food. And there's, there's many ways that you can do that. And as Dari said, there is no single silver bullet, which is going to solve it. But it is 
also the case that some things are likely to work more than others, and some things are likely to work more amongst broader populations. And so from where I sit, the organizing principle that I always try to use when thinking about how do you drive policy, whether it be local or state or federal, is focus on the behaviors which cluster among the highest risk groups. And by doing so, you can have population impact, but you can also address this ever-present issue of equity. And you can really try to improve everyone at the same time by improving people who are at higher risk for diet-related diseases more. So just to give you one example of where I think we're making progress, but where we really need to push a lot harder, is a really tiny piece of federal legislation called menu labeling. And menu labeling is not gonna change our lives. It was not intended to change our lives, but it was included in the 2010 Affordable Care Act and it was just putting calories alongside price. The intent was that you and I as customers would go into restaurants and lots of other types of establishments that sell food and we would purchase lower calorie options. The other intent is that restaurants would reformulate. And that is where the public health impact begins because you and I are gonna constantly get in our own way and make bad choices. But if restaurants start reformulating, and as a result, we're sort of seeing through research that there are lower calorie items on menus, that higher calorie items are dropping off menus. In a typical day, a third of kids and a third of adults are in these restaurants. If those changes are happening in the background and you, people are constantly in these restaurants, it actually can start to move the needle and pull some of the excess calories out of the diet. But it is just one change. So the next question is, what are all the things that you do to wrap around that one particular policy to try to drive impact? And to Anona's point about how you need to go federal and go local, menu labeling is a good example of something that started bubbling up at the local level and then became federal policy. And so it is definitely the case that for nutrition policy, local and state government are incubators for really exciting ideas, which can take a long time to get to the federal level, but they can inform each other around the country and really drive progress. And another one that you've been working on a lot is the sugary beverage taxes, um, specifically in Philadelphia and other cities. Um, so. How is that one working? Um, has, have you seen progress? Have, what, what impacts have that had, ha, has that had on, um, on what people are choosing? Yeah, so I love talking about the beverage tech work. So this is work that I've done in collaboration with Christina Roberto, who's at Penn, and Hannah Lawman, who's at the Philadelphia Health Department. And so Philadelphia was the second U.S. city to pass a beverage tax. And, and these taxes are highly contentious. There's lots of lobbying that happens against them. There's lots of lobbying for the taxes. Folks lobbying for the taxes tend to be a sort of a David and Goliath story. And Philadelphia passed their beverage tax on the third try and on the third try to get it over the finish line, they ended up incorporating artificially sweetened drinks. And then the money is being used to fund uh, universal pre-K slots, community schools, and green space. So there's a lot of investment in sort of keeping this, this tax alive. So it's a 1.5 cent per ounce tax. And we did an evaluation to understand, well, what is the impact of the tax on prices and purchases? All the beverage taxes in the US, there are currently seven, are excise taxes, which means it's applied to a distributor who applies it to a store owner, who then applies it to us as customers. So the first order question is, do we as customers experience the full weight of the tax? And so in Berkeley, they found roughly 50% pass through it, varies a lot by retailer type. In Philadelphia, amongst the large retailers, we had a paper that came out in JAMA in the spring, we found that it varied from about 40%, 43% to be exact, to 104%. So 43% is among um, the mass merchandisers and then up to 104% in the pharmacy. So it varied. What we care about is, do customers change their purchases of taxed beverages? Berkeley found about a 10% decline. 
In Philadelphia, we found a 38% decline. And that is after accounting for the fact that there's about a quarter offset of people taking their baskets out of the city to buy soda elsewhere or tax beverages because they don't want to pay the tax. So that's an enormous public health win. And from the evidence so far, there doesn't appear to be a negative economic impact, which is what the, the opponents of taxes often point to. You're going to increase unemployment claims, for example, and we're not seeing that in the case of Philadelphia. So while there is no single silver bullet we can apply to this issue, if I had to pick a handful of things, sugary beverages would be on that list. And, and it seems as if Massachusetts is poised to potentially become the first state to have a beverage tax. That's something just to stay tuned about. It's amazing that someone would tie potential unemployment um, benefits to whether you have to pay a tax on a soda. Anyway, <laughs> um, so there are so many other programs that are helpful to our public health, but um, in my work at Edible Boston, it's it's been my mission to get my readers back into the kitchen and cooking again. I feel like there's so much packaged food, there's so much um, supermarket prepared food that is... Um, Maybe it is scratch cooked by someone, but it is, you never really know what's inside it. So um, getting people to use ingredients that are fresh and in season and locally grown is, is our mission at the magazine. Um, I know that there are uh, policy levers that can help this along, like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, or um, what's called food stamps. Um, and that here in Massachusetts, those dollars can be spent at farmer's markets, so they're buying fresh ingredients to use at home. It's not a packaged good. Um, but are there other policies that can help people eat more healthfully um, and cook for themselves more often? Is there is there anything within uh, the farm bill, which I know is a contentious issue at the moment? Um, and are there any stumbling blocks uh, to getting people cooking again besides just time? Yeah, so it's a great question. And I say before answering the how do you get people cooking, I would caveat it by saying there are a lot of people that are just simply not going to cook, like full stop. And so I think you can strongly influence people that really want to be cooking and preparing food at home, partly with the knowledge that pretty much anything that we eat in our homes is healthier than what we can eat outside of our homes. But there are a lot of people where they don't have the time or the interest or the, or the tools at home to speaking about barriers. Um, and so I think if we then put that aside and then focus on the people that we're trying to move into the kitchen, there, there are things that you can do through policy. And so you mentioned SNAP, formerly food stamps. As Dari said, it's a, it's a big program. So we have a suite in the US of about 50 nutrition assistance programs. And SNAP is the, the elephant in the room. It, has, it serves about 40 million Americans in a given month. About half of them are children. And then the budget, as Dari said, is about $76 billion a year. Now, a piece of SNAP is a program called SNAP-Ed. And, and through that, they, there is some direct nutrition education. There's also increasingly this effort to think about what are some of the policies and systems and environmental changes that can actually help people make healthier choices, cooking being included in there? Problem is that those types of efforts only touch about 5% of SNAP participants. So there's a real opportunity just within the SNAP program to try to improve the public health impact. One way of doing that is trying to increase people's cooking at home by, by sort of holding up more opportunities within SNAP-Ed to do that. And that would happen through the, potentially through the Farm Bill where SNAP is authorized. Um, I always feel like when I go into a supermarket and it's just filled to the brim with packaged goods and packaged food, it's, it's so overwhelming to me to, to walk in there and realize that this is repeated in the next block and the next block, state after state across this whole country, where is all this food going to go? Um, it, it seems to me that part of the problem is surplus food 
but also um, subsidies. And, and so in the farm bill, is, is there any hope for a change where we're not going to be subsidizing our farmers to grow food that is then turned into things that are unhealthy and put into our bodies in mylar packaging with lots of plastic? <laughs> um, so I am not an agricultural policy specialist. I'll caveat first by saying that. But I would say that there are a lot of changes you could make to agricultural policy through the Farm Bill to change the incentives such that we have less high fructose corn syrup in our diet and we have less processed food in our diet. But, but that is not going to happen tomorrow. Like, I don't want to be the pessimist in the room, but these are changes which I think will be very, very hard to push forward at the federal level because the A, government is very permeable to interest groups. B, interest groups play a huge role in all of these policies that we're talking about. And the, the size of the public health slash nutrition, public health nutrition voice is tiny compared to sort of the, the big dollars in the room. So I think there are a lot of opportunities to try to modify agri agricultural subsidies. But I think what probably will be more meaningful in the short term is what do you do about incentivizing local farmers? And what do you do about incentivizing people to have opportunities to buy local? And, and the challenge is, it's very easy to say, it's harder to do. It's expensive to buy local. It's inconvenient to buy local because you can't just walk to that supermarket that's on the corner. You may have to go to a farmer's market that has specific hours or to a co-op, which is not on your way home from work. And so I think that one thing that I personally often find frustrating is that there's this like 30,000 foot do-gooder level. And then there's like the on the ground. But look, if what we really care about, if, if one of the thrusts of all this conversation is let's help people that need it most, then you have to sort of be honest about realistic constraints in life. And so all of these different opportunities have trade-offs. And sometimes they create the most trade-offs for people who really need the help the most, if that makes sense. It does make sense. <laughs> um, should we take some questions? Is there, are there any questions here? First, thank you so much for, for speaking. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here. My, my name is Galen. I'm a founder of a Boston-based tech company called Green Choice. And we're focusing on, on empowering consumers to make informed food choices, specifically by simplifying and rewarding healthy and sustainable grocery shopping. Now, um, so we're thinking about how do we foster healthy relationships with food all the time? And so when you mentioned the, the menu labeling legislation and reporting calories, it kind of sparked a question, which is, you know, how do you manage uh, the risk of perpetuating unhealthy relationships with food when uh, focusing attention on specific nutrient attributes? Um, and also the kind of the risk of misinformation, right? Because in many cases you can have a reformulation that reduces calories, but uh, not much healthier of, a, of an option, right? Where you have untested or, or harmful additives that are um, null of calories. So yeah, it's a hard question, but I'm just looking for your thoughts. Yeah, so let me take the second half first. So if you look at what's happening with reformulation, the, the positive story is calories among the new stuff coming on menus is going down by about 120 calories, which is, which is quite a large amount. The problem is the nutrient change underlying that is that good fat is decreasing and sugar is mm. going up. That's not good, obviously. And so it's, like, it's not intended consequence of a well-intended policy. And so you have to keep an eye on it and recognize it. Um, but the other part of your question is, well, should we focus on calories? Why not focus on something else? And it's both and. Manual labeling is one teeny tiny thing that has a very specific intent. And yes, we need lots more things out there like that. I will admit to being somewhat pessimistic about our ability to educate consumers. I think much like cooking, there is a swath of consumers who really care. And so it's, it's easy to harness their attention. But there's so many others, and I would dare say more than the majority, 
who it's a secondary concern to economic issues and other things. And so you could sort of put it in front of people, but they're like, okay, I know, but how much does it cost? And so for me, really the physical access and financial access often I think are more important. So it's sort of like putting half mushrooms in a burger that if you don't notice it, you're getting fewer calories. You're also getting more nutrients. You're still getting your fast food burger. Maybe it isn't such a, it isn't such a problem for the person who eats a burger every day. It, they, they're not noticing and they're doing better for themselves. Yeah. And especially if it's stealth health and they don't know about it, yeah. even better. Stealth health. I like that. <laughs> um, there was another question here. Someone raised their hand. Thanks. So I'm Nathaniel Brooks. I work at Commonwealth Kitchen, which is a food business incubator in Dorchester. And I was, one I wanted to mention, a, a former business um, from our kitchen, uh, Fresh Truck, which actually brings mobile markets to consumers to address some of those access issues. I think it's a really interesting model. Love to hear your thoughts about it. And second, they're trying something, and I'm curious uh, from a policy expert's perspective on its efficacy, which is around uh, prescriptions for food and subsidizing access to food in that kind of a medical context. Yeah, so to start with the first piece, anything that increases access I think is great. There was an example in Detroit where they reformulated ice cream trucks into fruit and vegetable trucks and got them into areas that had less access. So I think that's wonderful. Now, when it comes to food as prescriptions, one area that health systems, this goes back to Dari's point about costs, one area that they're really interested in is how do we deal meaningfully with social determinants of health like the fact that people have food insecurity and hunger because it is getting in the way of good care. So if you need to take medication and you don't have food, that's a problem. So the single biggest way that health systems are addressing this is through nutrition. And so there are a lot of health systems that you can walk out and you can walk out with a bag of food when you leave. And so I think there's a lot of promise in that. Um, and it would be sort of one part of a puzzle to help, to help people who are in the healthcare system that need nutrition to sort of help themselves get better. Um, but I would say it is probably just one piece. And there are so many people that don't get access to the healthcare system. So I'm someone who is much more of an advocate of thinking about how do you help people in the broader environment prior to them getting there? But sure, once they get there, the, the sort of giving food as prescriptions is an important thing to do. Are we out of time? Are we? Okay, one, all right, <laughs> one more question. Thanks. I'm a student here at Friedman. I study nutritional epidemiology and I'm also in urban planning somehow. And um, I am wondering about the people who aren't going to cook at home. Um, and I, I'm also thinking about how uh, one of the biggest lobbying groups in America is the other NRA, the National Restaurant Association. And I'm also thinking about how the minimum wage in the U.S. has been the same since 1991 at two something. And one of the biggest jobs in the U.S. is working at restaurants, which contributes to, um, which is, yeah, part of low-income people have low wages and can't buy good food, but they're in restaurants. And so I'm just wondering if you think about this or think about policies maybe besides or in addition to this, or I just am wondering about that group of people. <laughs> Yeah, so, so I think that one huge challenge is that nutrition policy is siloed and economic policy is siloed and, and agricultural policy is siloed. Um, and I think actually where, this is sort of more tangential to your question, but I think where nutrition policy actually might have the biggest advances is by partnering with the environmentalists and really making a lot of changes there around sustainability. And so I think that when we think about, you know, the minimum wage, and there's a lot of states that are fighting for a higher minimum wage right now, like that has huge implications for purchasing power. We can also think about what about the size of the SNAP benefit and what if we made it a little bit bigger? 
These are all really hard things to move. And so I think that you just sort of put a lot of irons in the fire, you read the political tea leaves, and you push forward when it makes sense. But I think this moment, to Dari's point about the recommendations that are coming out, like this is an important moment. Like people are paying attention. It's a presidential debate. You need people who are going to be representing us to be talking about the issues that can actually improve our lives. And so I think that's where we all can play a role to try to get the issues that matter so much in front of the right people. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system. 